The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is John, Jonathan Busfield. I am not here with John Cuna today. He's actually taking this one off, but he'll be back next time. So the topic for today is sort of more of a general um, general updates on, on sports slash mental health related news. I am going to be focusing on uh, kind of Jackie Mack and maybe talking a little bit about Alex Caruso in this episode. Alex Caruso is a player, now for the Bulls in the NBA, played for the Lakers for, for a few years as well, so we'll get into him a little bit later in the episode. I'm going to start with Jackie Mack. So Jackie McMullen uh, is a columnist, um, you know, sports reporter um, extraordinaire. We've talked about her in a past episode. We, I think it was the episode on Jackie Mack and sports media or mental health and sports media. And so she's very well known, particularly in the Boston area where John and I are from, um, and where we still reside and work, Jackie Mack is is very well known in the sports world um, as someone who is very skilled at what she does. You know, being a journalist um, was able to kind of span multiple generations and really sort of uh, you know cut her teeth in an era where she's probably definitely the only woman doing it, um, which couldn't have been easy. Uh, she's also just great at what she does. You know, the the content she creates and has created for a very long time is always. Um, just a level. It's like really good stuff to to read. Um, she's also someone who, you know, wrote the. She created sort of that mental health series on ESPN. I want to say around 2015. It was a five part series. We talked about that in the episode we did on on Jackie Mack specifically, and that was a that was a big thing. I mean, you know, obviously we're we're gonna slant towards that kind of stuff because of what we're interested in, but you can tell that the five part series she did for ESPN. You know, I think one was about Kevin Love and his anxiety. There was another one about OCD, which covered Shane Larkin. Uh, there was another one about referees. So there's five parts to it. And it was just really well done. It was really in-depth. You can tell she spent a ton of time on it, a ton of effort. Um, not just getting into the details, but really getting people to open up in ways that they really hadn't up until that point. Um, and, and getting specifically male athletes to open up about those things. You know, John and, John and I know firsthand how difficult it is to get guys to open up about um, difficult topics and any topics related to mental health or emotion or things like that. And Jackie Mack did that really, really successfully. And so one, that's just impressive in its own right. But also that was, you can see that that was the foundation for the kind of floodgates opening over the last six years and all these athletes kind of coming out and talking about stuff. You can very much, I'm not saying it was all Jackie Mack in the five, um, the five section piece that she did for ESPN, but that was a huge part of it. You know, obviously we can tie back into other things that happened before specifically, <clears throat> I would say Meta World Peace, you know, talking, uh, thanking his psychiatrist or psychologist when he won the title with the Lakers, maybe 2010. I know Brandon Marshall coming out in 2011 um, about, um, you know, uh, I believe borderline personality disorder. So that was that was a big one, and and those two guys have been 
very vocal and that that has certainly helped uh be part of the foundation to have athletes open up but jackie mack in that five uh five piece series was really really crucial for that and uh, i encourage anyone to go back and look at any of the five or all of the five they're just they're really interesting and still to this day um are very interesting even though six years has gone by and, and a lot has changed uh, in the last five, six years with regard to how we view mental health and, and the stigma being reduced and things like that. So I would just de- definitely encourage everyone to check that out. She did announce that she is retiring, I believe just from ESPN. I guess she's kind of retiring from the her main job, you know, of ESPN and, and trying to, um, you know, basically connect with players to get stories and, and be a journalist. I think that she's done with that. Um, she, it sounds like she might be doing some other things. Maybe still, I think she's still with the ringer. I'm still going to be doing that, Uh, maybe occasional podcast appearance on Bill Simmons, the Bill Simmons podcast, where they talk basketball and and, uh, and journalism and other things, which is every time she's on there, I can't get enough of it. Those those episodes are super interesting um, because of both of them. They're both super talented at what they do. So she'll still be doing some things. But, you know, clearly she even mentioned that um, I believe she was one year into a three year deal with ESPN um, right now when she was one year in when she announced her retirement and uh, mentioned on the most recent Bill Simmons podcast that she, as soon as she signed the three-year deal, she knew she was done. And so that kind of like, to me, what stood out about that is sort of that, that gut feeling that you get when certain things are, um, are happening in your life and, and maybe you know you're supposed to be doing something or you know you shouldn't be doing something. Um, you know, some people might argue that gut feelings aren't real or what, what does that even mean? I personally think they are. You know, I think it's, uh, I don't know how I would describe it necessarily, but I do think that um, if you know yourself and you know what's right for you and you make a decision or you're about to make a certain decision and you get that kind of feeling in your gut um, about you know w- wanting to go left versus right on something, uh, I think usually it's wise to listen to that. Not always. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to always know for, sur- for sure that that, that gut reaction is accurate, um, but I think more than not it is. Um, and if you don't listen to it, you, know, you often learn the hard way. Um, now I think there's a line between that and maybe, um, doing what's called emotional reasoning. So making decisions based on emotion, I think that can feel or seem similar to a a quote unquote gut feeling, but probably isn't the same. Um, and so it's, I think it's key to, to notice the difference between those two things. I would say self-awareness is what kind of sets them apart. If a person is not living in denial, if they're very self-aware, they're aware of their strengths and weaknesses, they're aware of what adds quality to their life versus things that just don't do not resonate with who they are as a person i think it's easier to to have gut feelings and trust that their gut feelings as opposed to just being swayed by your emotion in any give, given moment um but i thought that was interesting because she clearly said that one year into signing that or right when she signed the three-year deal she knew that 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 was probably not what she wanted and, and maybe she tried to make it work for a year and, and has decided uh, one year in to just retire and, and focus on other things i think she's also talked about you know, the impact COVID had on on her perspective um, as a person, but also, you know, her role as a journalist. So it was kind of a two-pronged uh, impact that it had. I mean, on, from the personal side, she referenced how it, you know, made her almost step back from the painting. Like John and I use that analogy a lot where to gain perspective on, on your life and what's going on and really try to take stock in how something impacts you overall you can't be too close to the painting where everything looks like just a blotch blotches of colors. You got to step back to gain some perspective. Um, and there's certain ways to do that. Uh, leaving a job is one of them, but uh, taking a break can be one traveling can be another. There's there different ways to gain some perspective. And it sounds like for her, you know, being 
during the COVID period, not being able to see her, her parents as much, who I believe were in Florida and are, are you know, more towards elderly age. Um, that was pretty tough. I think it put things in perspective for her. At least that's what she commented on. It sounds like that. And maybe she has had them move up to, to the Massachusetts area to be closer with them and spend more time with them. Um, so that obviously, you know, when you when you have family, things like that come into play. And obviously, I think the, the COVID time period has definitely uh, helped people gain perspective on, on what's important. Um, and it's led to a lot of people making decisions differently about work. And it's not just Jackie Mack. I think you, you've heard... Um, I don't know if this necessarily relates to labor shortages in the U.S. and some of that stuff that's going on, but it does seem that um, a lot of people are looking at work differently, uh, and they're they're maybe edging towards living life a little bit more than so work working to live instead of living to work. Uh, I think is is it's shifted that for a lot of people, which I think is a good thing. Um, but I guess it's it's individual in terms of who make how you make that decision. Uh, so that was on the personal side how COVID affected affected Jackie Mac on the professional side she spoke to how you know it was edging towards this anyway um in pro sports with access being just different you know access to athletes has shifted it in jackie max era and, and maybe until a few years ago it was more of like you know if you got there early you're in the stadium you can talk to people person to person um maybe in the locker room after the game that kind of thing it has shifted away from that even before covid it was kind of shifting away from that more towards a uh, social media based uh, DM kind of based form of communication. Um, the access was different. You know, you just had to shift. And I think um, Jackie Mack is someone who preferred to do, still prefers to do the in person. She's not even on social media, which I got to give her props for. I don't know how many people have been able to succeed professionally, particularly in the sports world, without being on social media in some way, shape, or form. So she was able to do that. And, you know, she spoke to the fact that. Look, you know, COVID uh, escalated that even more. You know, right now, um, due to COVID restrictions, they're not just going to go let people into locker rooms. Like that stuff has changed, or people are going to be wearing masks at all times, which at all times, which definitely changes direct person-to-person communication. And I think that that for her was another contributing factor. Like if I can't if I can't be in the position to do to be successful in terms of how this that's how she's successful is by having one-on-one meetings. You saw it with the five-part series in 2015. Like she got, she gets people to open up because she sits down with them, and she's face to face, right across from each other. And uh, her demeanor and her tone and the way she steers a conversation, it makes people feel very comfortable, and it makes them want to open up about difficult things. And that's a skill; it's not easy to do. And I don't think it works the same on a Zoom meeting. I really don't. And it definitely doesn't work the same in a direct message, you know, or DM on online. I mean, this to me ties into therapy and how I think it's great that telehealth and, and zoom therapy sessions has been uh has become sort of ubiquitous as, as a result of covid um i think it pr- improves access to care which is probably the most important thing right just people getting if people can get more access to care because now they can do a telehealth uh you know f- uh session with their primary care doctor or with their therapist i think that's great the one downside to it is that i don't think zoom sessions uh, have the same quality uh, across the board right whether the therapist being as good as a therapist or the or the the client really being able to having to open up and be having to be vulnerable in the same way you have to be when you're in person i don't think those things happen the same way in a zoom session now is it 90 percent of it 80 percent of it i don't really know i think it's most of it um, but it's definitely not the same and it's not as good in my opinion um, now maybe the access to care piece uh, outweighs that i think it does so it's still worth it um but I relate to Jackie Mack saying that because I think um, I'm always in favor of meeting in person with, with the clients that I work with. 
Um, and even the teammates I, I, I work with, if I'm on the same team as someone at a company, I prefer to have meetings in person. I just think you're going to pick up on more. You're going to connect more. Um, everyone leaves in a better position with more clarity through the communication. Everyone's more locked in and engaged when it's in person than they are in a Zoom session. Now, people can disagree with me all they want on that. Uh, I, I'm going to believe that, um, you know, for the rest of my life that that's just, I just don't think people are as successful when they are uh, communicating digitally and, you know, via Zoom meeting. I just don't think it's it's nearly as, as good as in person. I also think the same thing about working from home. I think, I feel like we've swung too far in the other direction. You know, I think for a long time, companies were a little bit too uptight about work schedules and flexibility and occasional work from home and remote work and that kind of thing. A little bit too controlling. I think companies were expecting people to always be in the office and that kind of thing, which I don't think that was good. But now we've gone so far to the point where people are trying to portray this to be like, everyone should be able to work from home 24-7. I don't know about anyone else, but my perception, people are not just not as productive at home. Um, and I think it kind of ruins both things, in my opinion. I mean, I think where you spend your time at home is where you sleep. It's where you relax. It's where you connect with family. Psychologically, spaces hold, you know, environments and spaces hold uh, memories, and they relate to what we do every day. And we can't always separate that. So if you're doing work under the same roof that you're sleeping and you're interacting with family and you're connecting with your spouse and things like that, like those things are going to meld and, and not always in a good way. You know, you're gonna. It means work stress is now literally coming under the roof that you're trying to relax in. Um, it means the temptation to relax, the the desire to be um, a little bit disconnected from work in a good way is going to, you know, bleed into your work life, which is, I, I would have to imagine, reduces productivity. Um, now, there's some pros, I think, too, right? If you don't have to commute, um, you know, that kind of thing, I'm sure it's, it's a little bit easier on that side. So there's definitely pros and cons. But in my opinion, you know, people... Other than maybe using remote work as a one or two day a week kind of thing, I don't. If it's all remote, I personally don't think people are as effective um, or connect as well with their teammates, in my opinion. Um, so she's she's never been on social media in terms of Jackie Mac, uh, which I think is impressive that she was able to do this for as long as she has. Um, it sounds like from hearing her talk that ESPN has tried to get her on social media several times, and she just has always kind of said. Uh, Maybe not outright refuse, but just kind of never taking the steps to make it happen. Um, and I think that I, I'm envious of that. I, I can't stand social media. I know it's it's sort of something we have to do or feel like we have to do um, to try to connect with people and, and get the right information out there to help people. But I'd be lying if I said it was enjoyable most of the time. It's it's not. And it's uh, it's I think it's great that some people have just decided to commit to not even being on that. So, um there was one caveat to hearing her talk in the most um, recent Bill Simmons podcast that I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit. And it's her and, and her, Bill Simmons, and really the media in general, it seems like not as much Bill Simmons. I would say Jackie Mack made a comment about, um, she didn't really, I think they were talking about Kevin Durant and when he went to the Warriors. And she didn't. She said she didn't really understand the hate for, for KD going to the Warriors. And I don't think Bill Simmons really talked about this. I think he kind of understands the the fan behavior a little bit more, it seems like. But there's a lot of people in the media that they almost, it seems like they want fans to be fans in some ways, but then they expect them not to be fans in other ways, right? It's like they, you know, if you really step back and think about what sport, what professional sports is and what being a fan is, I mean, these are essentially people that are paying tons of money in different ways to buy jerseys and and watch people 
uh, play a sport in front of them that they've never met before uh, for a team that's completely made up uh, in a sport that that is made up right like they don't we don't know any of these people there's no reality to that um, I think we collectively buy into the shared myth that we all support this team that was created out of thin air with these people that wear a piece of laundry that we just decide that we all kind of support together it's it's part of, in my opinion, I mean, it started long before professional sports in the United States, but it's part of kind of being human and it's what brings us together. But it is, there's a shared myth built into it, right? And so I think, you know, anytime you're expecting people to um, be delusional enough to support a team that doesn't actually exist, just exists because we say it does, um, the, the team filled with people that they've never met and probably aren't ever going to meet and want to care about the, the, whether that team wins and loses uh, you know, look, that's that's a little bit delusional from the beginning. And I think it's in a good way. I feel like it helps people sort of disconnect with the stress of life and all the other things like th- that, that are going on in a reality based way. This allows them to throw themselves into a a made up team with people they've never met and join with strangers that they've never met to support a common cause like that. If you think about it, it's actually ridiculous, but in in a great way. So my point is, like, we can't I don't think we can expect fans to be fans, which is short for fanatic, right? So be fans and support this team that's made up and then ask them to act rationally when it comes to, <laughs> to the to the decisions that players make or things like people were mad at KD because they're their fanatical fan it's fanatical fan driven behavior. Like it's all about fake loyalty to these teams that were made up, but like we believe in it because we're excited to join together and support teams with other people, right? And so when we see someone who is perceived to be like maybe disloyal because they they left uh, the team that they were on and went for the the easy win with the team that had the other stars, it's not hard to see why fanatical people are going to sort of be up in arms about that. Um, so I see that a lot. Where you know I, even like local um, you know uh, sports talk radio hosts in Massachusetts often um, sort of criticize I mean, like the Felger and Mazes of the world sort of criticize fans for saying we or us this is another example of that where they say like uh we shouldn't have drafted that that player and and they'll make fun of the of the person for saying we as if they're on the team right that kind of thing and i think it's just ridiculous because it's like you you want you want fans to be fans and support the team obviously they're going to say we obviously they're going to say us no one really thinks that they mean that in a literal way they mean it in a sports fandom way like we're all in the same kind of um supporting group right like if you're a celtics fan are you going to say, like, I hope we do good this year? I hope we do well this year? Yeah, of course you are. Does it mean you literally think you're part of the Celtics? No. I, I think anyone with, with half a brain knows that that's not what people mean. They're saying it in a sports sense. So I think I, I've seen a lot of this uh, stuff across social media um, and with sports media where they, I think they're edging towards, like, wanting to give players the respect they deserve and wanting to really not look at players as product, which I understand. But you can't expect fans who, who are fanatical to all this to, in one sense, be fanatical in the way that they're going to pay money to watch strange people they've never met play a sport. But then, so you want them to do that so that there's a market for this. But then you don't want them to act like fans on social media and other things. Like you can't have one without the other. You know, you got to take the good with the bad uh, across the board. So that was just a little mini rant. Um, I want to talk a little bit quickly about Alex Caruso. So to me, Alex Caruso, he's a. Um, basketball player for the Chicago Bulls. He, he played for the Lakers for a few years. He's a, a great example of grim drive, in my opinion. So Alex Caruso went to Texas A&M um, 
only averaged eight points a game, 4.7 assists, um, and two steals a game. Like, not massive numbers. I mean, look, playing Division One basketball is playing Division One basketball. So anytime you make it to that level, you're one of the best at what you do. Like, that is incredibly uh, – I've seen people that were really, really good at basketball and made it to Division One and then sat the bench, like really good players. So anytime you can do that, you're great. But it, there's a big gap between being great uh, or even mediocre to great at Division One basketball and then being a you know, uh, consistent player in the NBA – so he goes undrafted out of Texas A&M. Uh, I think he was on the summer league team for the Sixers. They let him go. Then he was on the Lakers summer league team, and they signed him to a two-way deal for two seasons. Uh, to, uh, signed him to a two-way deal. He was in the G League for two seasons. Um, bounce, you know, trying to make his way up. Eventually got some playing time and was able to sign a two-year, $5.5 million deal with the Lakers. Um, was on the Lakers for a few seasons and really, you know, was just a gritty player um, and just signed a four-year, $36 million deal with the Bulls. So this is like, I think that's a great story because if you look at um, the way he plays, you know, he's someone who's who works harder than most people. You know, he's defensively driven. Um, he's sort of a pest on the court. He's just, you know, relentless with, with his defense. Uh, he's a great teammate. I mean, you could tell he's just, uh, the, the people he plays with really likes him. You could tell, I really like him. You could tell he's a good guy. Um, he treats people with respect. It seems I'm not on the team, so I don't know. Um, but his game is a, is about work ethic and outworking people and, and playing defense and, and playing defense at multiple positions. I think um, he's made comments about liking. He likes when he's able to play on a team with people that are better than him because it elevates his game. I think that's a really cool comment because it shows that he's not intimidated by uh, players with more skill or who are better than him. He relishes that. He wants to be around that because he knows it. It uh, it helps him get better. He also made a really cool comment about why he thinks guy other guy other players get stuck in the G League or never really get out of the G League and, and they don't make it as a pro. And and what he said was it's a it's a problem of approach. Like they are approaching um, the job interview in the wrong way. That's the way he phrased it, which I thought was really interesting. And what he said was it's almost like going to a job interview thinking you're interviewing to be the CEO when the company's looking for a janitor. You know, if you go in with that mindset, you're really just completely missing the mark. And I think that he was referring to that happening at the G League. You know, people in the G League are, are sort of auditioning as if they're going to be the next Michael Jordan. And what he says they're looking for, teams are looking for, you know, people that can guard multiple positions and be a good teammate. They're not looking for the next Michael Jordan, right? So they're not looking for a CEO. They're looking for, you know, maybe not the janitor, but someone who is a team player that can uh, do multiple things uh, across the board and help out and fill holes. And I think it, it, he's sort of insinuating that if people in the G League approach the job interview from a better perspective, more accurate perspective, they might have more success. So anyway, I thought it was really cool that that to see him sign a four-year deal for thirty-six million just shows you, like, you know, if you keep grinding and you're smart about your approach and you're honest with yourself about who you are and what your role is going to be, good things will happen. You know, if you're delusional about what your role is going to be or what you think it should be because it's going to make your ego uh, feel better about things that I think um, you're going to miss. You're gonna miss so I think that's it for today. Just want to remind everyone, um, you know, to go on YouTube, leave some comments, hit subscribe if you can. You know, we're trying to get that number up. We want um, mainly more than a number. We want comments. We want people to interact with some of our podcasts and give us some feedback. So uh, we really appreciate that. Um, we'll put all the links uh, in the show notes as usual. And uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Grim Drive Podcast. And we'll be back next week.